Okay, so take three. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to take three. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, this this week is going to be a little brutal for me because there, you know, um, there's something in particular that I want to talk about that it's it's so tough because when it comes to the show, I've always wanted to be as sincere as possible. And that often means that there will be topics that you know, it can't always be roses and sunshine. Sometimes you got to talk about the hard stuff. And right. I feel like right now, um, there's a particular hard thing in my life that is pretty devastating. And I'm trying to figure out how to navigate through that in the context of this show. Yeah. And for everybody listening, by the way, if this is your first time listening, stick through the end of the show. We go through lots of different topics and what we're talking about right now is how to talk about something personal to Lamb that he wants to talk about without it becoming a conversation that him and I should just be having that none of you would be interested in hearing. <laughs> and, and that's a difficult thing to navigate. I, for, I mean, it's something... By the way, we Lamb and I did an episode on my other podcast, Creative Minds. Go listen to that before you listen to this one because we're probably going to reference stuff in there because for us, it's two days in a row. Um, yeah, I will say, though, that that... See, that's the weird part um, about the topic that I'm talking about is that I definitely do think it's useful for other people to hear it. Um, I've just never really like gotten teary on the show before, and it might lead me to that. Right. And what, I, what I'm referring to is a way of talking about it in a way that people can relate to without sure. it just being us talking about details of our personal lives. You know what I mean? Yeah, like, I, exactly. Like, yeah. I, I did this with my mom and she said this and, and like nobody, nobody that doesn't know us wants to hear that. But then being able to say, I had this conflict with someone and this is how I'm feeling about that. And then uh, that's a different way of dealing with it. But it, I think that maybe for people who listen to podcasts, they don't realize that um, shows, especially shows like this, where it's two people, talking to each other um, continually, you know, every week is the same two people, that uh, those are things you have to learn to negotiate because you really are showing up to hear the two of us talk about what we're thinking about. And when, you know, like Lamb's having something he wants to talk about, something that we're going to get to in a second, um, how do we go through that? And that's why I, I pointed you guys to Creative Minds because we touched on this idea of what's personal and what's too personal in that episode, we're not going to rehash it here. Um, so, do you want to you want to do you want to do the follow up, or you want to jump right into your difficult topic? Let's do the follow up first. Okay. Um, why don't you start? Tell us about your thirty thirty thirty. Um, so thirty thirty thirty. Um, you know, music, watching something. Um, holy crap! I'm I'm, I'm blinking. Oh, uh, reading. Right. Reading. Um, so I've needed that much more than I've I've needed it in the past. Um, I don't know how do I even describe this. So so I can't really tell if it improved anything, but it definitely helped to make things a lot less bad than they than they they felt this week for me, because it allowed me a moment to look 
forward to something. Um, you know, and, and like I said, I was dispersing them throughout the course of the day. So they weren't all just in big chunks all at once. Um, and it definitely gave me a reprieve, um, from the difficulties of the day. Um, so I, I think I'm going to pretty much do it indefinitely. I think it's always a good idea. I mean, especially reading, um, music is one, I think I need to reinvest in a little bit. Music has kind of fallen behind the wayside because of podcasts. Yeah, sure. So I, I tend to, and I've been realizing recently that I need to, I've talked about this a little bit before, but even more so, I still need to continue to reduce my podcast input. It's just too much. Um, to the point where I don't even remember what I listened to. So that's of no use to anyone. So of the three, watching a show, music, um, reading, which one were you doing the least of before you started doing this? Um, oh, that's a good question. Um, I definitely was listening to music the most. Um, is I, 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 I have... I have a, a, a lot of patience for a lot of things, but what I don't have patience for right now is sitting down and watching something. Um, and for reading, I feel like, so I'm, I'm, I'm a different type of reader. Well, maybe other people are, are readers like this too, but, but how do I describe it? Um, so I read in large chunks. I don't like reading small bits and pieces so that, you know, I'm, I'm, I've in the past, for example, when I like a book, I'll sit there and basically read, almost the entirety of the book in a couple of sittings. So that one felt very different for me and I didn't particularly like it as much. So I may modify that one a little bit. Um, I may, for example, instead of doing 30 minutes a day, I might do two or three hours every couple of days. The The show thing, I, I still don't have the patience for it. Like I find myself getting antsy um, when I sit down to do it. I mean, I force myself to do it. So I mean, it's definitely... It's definitely something that, that, so I think what it really comes down to for me is that the, the music allows me to engage in a way that, that lets me use my imagination how I want to versus with reading or a TV show where I'm locking into the creation of someone else. So why, why don't, is that why you don't think you have the patience for it right now? I think so. Yeah, I think I need to let my mind wander and I think that's why music appeals to me. Not only that, but I feel like the type of music I'm listening to allows me a certain level of emotional freedom. Like for example, I know this is this is weird, but I like to listen to the same kind of music that I'm in mood-wise. Um, so if I'm sad, I listen to sad music. If I'm happy, I listen to happy music and so on and so forth. And I like to feel that emotion on my terms. And I don't think that movies and books really allow me that same level of freedom versus music where it the mood of the music is 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 more important the the music the sound and the rhythm is more important than the um message the lyrics um and so i could just get lost in the music itself i think that's pretty normal i think most people listen to sad music when they're sad and happy music when they're happy yeah i don't, yeah, know, yeah. I don't know many people that that put on um I don't know, like uh, Ask by the Smiths when they're in a great mood. that They want to sing along to a song about suicide. <laughs> yeah, that's true. Um, in that time of your 30, 30, 30, did you find time to uh, play Oxenfree? I did not, actually. I, I tried to... 
So, so basically, I'm, I'm on a timer now every day for the amount of time I get to spend on my phone. Um, and so I have to divvy that time very preciously. Um, so unfortunately, I haven't played it yet. I will, I will at some point in the near future. I just haven't done it yet. I recommend that on the iPad. Uh, okay. Just you're going to want that screen real estate. Trust me. <laughs> just, I mean, you're, you're moving a character just across the screen using your finger. So the smaller the screen, the more of a pain in the ass that's going to be. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, did you get any chance to to start reading Digital Minimalism yet? No, not at all. All right, we'll get back to those then. Um, my challenge was uh, no iPad while I'm watching TV and no podcast while I'm sitting at the computer. Mm. I did not succeed. Um, <laughs> but it, it was actually a really good test it, because what I realized is to some degree, I like using the iPad while I'm watching TV. Um, I'm also fighting against a lifetime habit and not necessarily iPad, but um, as a kid, I was always drawing while I was watching TV, uh, not just as a kid, my whole life. I've always been doing something while I watch TV. And not 100% of the time, but it's always since I was a kid, there was always a time when that was a good chunk of my TV watching was doing something else at the same time. Um, so maybe it's not necessarily about quitting that habit, but more um, reining it in. You know, I don't need to play solitaire. It doesn't need to happen. Sure. But if I'm, if I'm uh, you know, perusing uh, some of the things that I've written in my notebook for the day to search on, you know, because I don't do searches on my phone anymore, that, that might be a good time for that. And the, it's a similar, similar theory with the no podcast at the computer. Um, I, I was really good about not listening to podcasts while I was trying to think at the computer, um, which sounds like something that most people would get immediately, but I didn't. But I caught myself this week many times going, wait a minute, and then turning something off. Um, but I was doing something mindless, you know, like moving files or something like that. There's no reason I can't listen to a podcast then. Sure. So um, maybe that one for me, the lesson is just balance. And I think that's what's when we talk about a lot of this, um, you know, minimizing and stuff like that. Um, it's not really about that's why I really want you to read Digital Minimalism. It's not about quitting things, it's about putting things in their proper slots and uh, in the right places, using them for the right things. You know, my, my phone is a tool, it doesn't mm-hmm. need to be anything else. Yeah. Um, I'm going to grab something from my list right now because it fits into what I'm saying right now. Um, one of the things that I, two actually, I'm going to grab two things. They're very brief things, but um, I canceled cellular service to my Apple Watch this week um, because I realized I've only used it once. <laughs> and that's, that's when I that's when I signed up for it to see if it worked. Um, so stupid to waste money on something like that. Um, maybe it's a technology that's ahead of its time. You, did you ever? Did you have a cellular Apple Watch? I did not. Okay, so then you never even had to think about it. it there's no need for it. Um, plus, I haven't been wearing the watch. Well, I, I will say that that was an actual choice. I chose not to have it on my my, I because I, I really want the 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 Apple Watch for whatever they're up to now, the one with the cellular service. But mm-hmm. I, I purposely made the choice not to get it because of the cellular service. I don't. I, I I'm getting to the point now where I want to be on my phone less and less and less and less. And like the the less I use it, the less I want to be on it. I think that if if my carrier wasn't Sprint, um, I probably would have continued using 
the cellular on my watch because um, Sprint, the signal, um, it's, it's okay on the phone. It's not great. It's not Verizon quality, um, but it's, it's okay. I haven't really had, you know, sometimes I don't have perfect signal. I don't care. Like whatever, you can wait and I'll, I'll text you back later when I have a better signal. But that's mm-hmm. never actually really happened. It's usually um, the only time I really had a problem with signal was when I was trying to search on the internet, which I don't do anymore. But the reason I say I would have kept it is because um, the the signal to the watch is actually weaker than to the yeah. phone because the antenna is not as strong. Sure. Um, so so if you have a, a service like Sprint um, that's not as strong as, as Verizon, the cell on the watch, there's very few places that it worked anyways, um, at least not reliably. And if I was on Verizon or something like that, I would have used the watch more and my phone less. I would have been leaving my phone at home. And, you know, if somebody sent me something and I couldn't do it on my watch, tough shit. Um, But that's not, that's not the server I have. That's not the carrier I have. So dropped it. And what I've been considering doing instead is actually getting rid of my iPhone and getting the second light phone part two. Um, Anybody familiar? I know you remember the light phone one. The Light Phone 1 was a small device about the size of a credit card. All it did was make phone calls. Light Phone 2 will make phone calls. It will. Um, it has an alarm. It will do text messaging. And maybe, I'm not sure if it's going to come out with um, maps and uh, music playing capabilities. But I'm thinking of doing that, which is pretty crazy. How much do they run for? Uh, they're still, they haven't been released yet. So that's part of the reason I'm waiting. I want them to come out and I want to see reviews of them. Um, but they are, if you got it through the, I think it's through Indiegogo and not through Kickstarter. Mm -hmm. You got it through the funding link. Uh, I think it's like three, $300. And then, um, they're going to have their own cellular service. I think that's what they were. A lot of this is tentative because until it comes out, you don't know what they'll actually have. So, um, and that was going to be $25 a month. Uh, so what I was thinking hmm. was I might get one, get another, get a second line and try it out. Um, you know, still have my iPhone. And if I go a couple months where I like using the light phone more than I like using the iPhone, I, you know, I'm still on contract for the lease for my phone. Um, just writing out the rest of the lease and then dropping it and then switching numbers. Mm. Interesting. Yeah. So we'll see. I, I just don't, I don't see the need for a smartphone anymore. I don't use, since doing all this minimalizing, I, I don't use anything on it. The only thing, oh, that's another service that the light phone might come with. The ability to call for a ride, which I'm assuming would probably be through Uber or Lyft. Ah, uh, gotcha. Okay. Which for me is a big thing. I don't drive, so. Hey, by the way, going back to uh, something we talked about previously, or you talked about previously, um, about you know doing something while you're watching something, I think that's part of the reason why um, I don't do the um, I don't do well with watching things is because I can't do something else while I'm watching something. Hmm. Well, you're in a better position because I do find that there are times when I will watch something and then realize halfway through it. Oh, I watched this before, but I wasn't paying attention. I had that recently when I, I rewatched that documentary, um, the band called Death, about the proto, the all black proto punk band called Death. Um, 
that never released an album until like the 2000s when they got rediscovered. Great documentary. Um, watched it before. Took me 20 minutes into it watching it like <laughs> two weeks ago to realize, <laughs> oh, yeah, this was really good. I saw this. <laughs> sure. Jeez. That's funny. And some of, some of it is also what I was, what we've been talking about with social media and stuff too, information overload, your brain literally just forgets that you do things because you have so much stuff coming in. Sure. All right. So um, maybe we, I don't know, you feel like going into your, um, your heavy topic so that we can maybe cleanse the palate afterwards? Oh, possibly. Um, or we so, can talk about something else. It's up to you. No, that's that's fine. That's fine. I I, I kind of want to explain something to our listeners too, or listener. <laughs> all two of you. All two of you. My um, iPhone and somebody else. So so basically, if if you've noticed this week, I'm kind of at a loss for words a little, and I sound a little bit slower and more solemn. Um, well, there's a reason for that. Um, the reason is because um, there are a lot of things that have happened this year, but one of the biggest is that. I'm redefining my relationship um, with my significant other. Um, and that's, that's, it's been a very brutal process, but a very honest one and a very loving one. So we've done it the right way. Uh, but even if you, doing something crappy the right way still sucks. Um, but I, I'm, I'm one of those, I'm in one of those very strange moments in my life where I feel both extremely desperate and extremely hopeful all at the same time. And I'm not sure how to reconcile those two feelings. Um, and I, I'm, I'm at a loss for, for, for the emotional journey, uh, you know, a roadmap for the, the emotional journey that, that I'm about to take. And in doing so, in, in making the changes that we're making, there might be quite a few things that break that we have to rebuild again. And I don't know... You know, it's 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 like parents always say, right? You you you, you know, what, to, from a from a couple or a person saying that you know they'll have kids when they're ready. Um, I remember my mom saying this to me actually. You know, I, I told her, you know, she asked me once, you know, am, am I going to have kids? And my response to her was, you know, I'll have it when I'll have a kid when I feel like I'm ready. To which she chuckled earnestly and basically said that you're never ready. You just have to do it. And. I feel like I'm in that situation right now with my relationship. And so the, the, the emotional weight of it is, is really weighing my, my, my psyche down quite a bit. Um, and it's making to, it to very... clarify real quick before you continue. Yeah. When you say you're in that situation, I understood what you mean. I want to make sure everyone understood what you mean. He doesn't mean that they're having a child. He means, yes, he means yes, the yes, emotional yes, yes. equivalent. I want to make sure everybody understood that. Yeah. We're not having a kid. Um, that's definitely <laughs> true. Um, but by that same token, I mean, it, I feel like we are, we're at a crossroads and, and most relationships throughout the course of their, their, their lengths and, you know, they experience some kind of hiccup or difficulty, but typically those, those difficulties are mostly external. Um, this one in particular is internal. And so because of that, um, I'm paying the price now for not being brave enough early enough. You know, quite a few of these things we, we saw coming and, you know, because her and I communicate very well, we, we at points have openly said to each other, Hey, we should probably deal with this or it's going to become a problem. And we just haven't made the effort to do so. And I think it's not about, in our case, it wasn't about effort. It was about fear um, because taking steps in a direction that you don't know is inherently terrifying. 
And I'm now paying the price for that lack of bravery. Hmm. That's a tough situation when you have to, when you look at it through that lens, isn't it? Sure. I mean, a tough situation in general, but looking at it through the lens of, of saying, Oh, you know, there's not to make light of this at all, but there is a, um, one of my favorite moments from the Simpsons, which I, I won't even be able to quote and in any way that will make it funny. <laughs> but basically, uh, I think I might've mentioned it here before where, um, Homer would, he did something and, you know, basically he understood, I don't remember if somebody told him or not, that uh, he's screwing over future Homer. And his response is basically, screw future Homer. Mm. And then we all make those choices every day, every single day. So I don't think it's a rare situation. Um, it's just a very personal situation. Yeah, I mean, the tough thing, though, in, in my particular case is that I did see it coming. And that's, and I think that's that's the part that really frustrates me the most is that I... I I saw the road ahead and I didn't act accordingly. And that, that is a tough, that is a tough thing to reconcile in my own head. Do you uh, think it was, it was fear or hope that it would go away? Definitely fear. I knew it wasn't going to go away. Um, and I think that that's the, the, the harder part for me is that I, I had a very strong awareness of what price I would pay in the long run. And I, and I didn't act early enough. Uh, I'm not. I'm not sure what to say in response. <laughs> in all yeah, honesty, hard, shit, Chad. I don't know what to say in response. I'm. I'm having a hard time having a conversation with myself. And you know me. Like I'm. I'm a pretty optimistic guy in, in, in most cases. You know. I'm. And even if I'm not optimistic, I'm gung ho. Um, in that I'm pretty. I'm pretty forward about fixing problems immediately. Um, and I act pretty decisively and pretty quickly. In this particular case, I feel so beaten and so overwhelmed that. I, I, I feel this this paralysis of sadness that is that is very unique. Like I, I've never I've never really experienced it like this before. When you first texted me about it, you said you want to talk about it on the podcast. Why? What, what about it made you want to talk about this in front of our listeners? Because this will this will go back to the Creative Minds episode we just did. Um, because of the greater good. Um, because I want people to understand this is not a woe is me situation. This is not a situation in which I'm asking for sympathy or even empathy from anyone. What I want to get across is that fear destroys things. Fear absolutely destroys things. And if you want to fail at something, go into it with fear. Um, I'm not saying that this is going to fail, but I'm definitely very clear now about the cost of, of fear and, and the time that you lose because of it. And so the reason why is because I want, I, I want to as much as I can, even if, even if I'm, you know, I know I'm not going to dramatically change anyone's minds um, within the scope of one episode of a podcast, but what I'm hoping to do is to take one decision that someone makes and remove fear from it. We've, you know, that, same idea of fear. This is um, something we've talked about many, many times in the original version of this show when we talked a lot more about creativity. You know, why doesn't this person write the novel? Why doesn't this person write the screenplay? Why doesn't this person um, write the program? Why doesn't this person write the song? Why doesn't this person, um, you know, go out for the first acting role? Fear. And that fear in those cases, it comes to bite you in the ass later too. It really does because, you know, you go, 
I'll use my myself instead of putting this on other people. I'll use myself as an example. Every day that I don't work on my novel, number one, I know that what, what's keeping me from working on it that day is fear. And every day that I don't write it is another day that later I'll think, I wish I had done it a day earlier. I wish I had done it. And you start adding all those days up and then you go, you know, you're, you're 70 years old and going, I wish I had written this 20 years ago. And you know, the, the bigger part that I want to get across here too is that I'm not saying you're not going to feel fear. That's insane. You know, it's, right. it's like when, when I used to be an actor, you know, um, when I was a musician, I, w- I would get ready to go on stage. I, I'd have people tell me stuff like, don't be nervous. Uh, bullshit. It, it, that, <laughs> that means you're getting advice from someone who's never done it before. And, and the difference is not whether you get nervous or not, or whether you're not afraid or not. The, the difference is it, it, it can't stop you. It just can't stop you. You know, like, but you know, I, 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 I've been brave about so many things in my life. You know, I've, I've gone into industries I have no business being in. I've gone into career paths that I have zero experience or zero uh, aptitudes for. And I've succeeded in those things because I was brave. And in the thing that mattered to me most, in, in, in the thing that defined me most in the last 20 years of my life, this relationship that I have, which is beyond important to me, more important to me than anything I've ever done, I was afraid. And that, that fear might cost me the most important thing to me. Well, the reason you were afraid though is because it was of such monumental importance. I mean, if it was just a fling, you wouldn't have been afraid of anything. Yeah, sure. Except for maybe an STD. <laughs> but but the but the, the, the at least I got a laugh out of you. <laughs> <clears throat> oh man. I choked on that one a little bit. Um <laughs> because I wasn't I didn't see it coming. Um <laughs> But I will, I will say though that that you know, that's the reason that that's that's even more reason why you shouldn't let the fear stop you because it is right. that important. Yeah, it's it's not about not feeling fear. You know, well, oh, there's many many iterations of this that have shown up in screenplays and books and whatever. But you know, bravery is not the absence of fear. Bravery is is still feeling fear and acting through it. Sure. Is, you know, and it, like you said, fear doesn't go anywhere. It's always going to be there in some form. Although I, I imagine the more you act through fear, the less you feel it. Yeah, I will say that's true. I mean, I, I know that from a couple of different things that, you know, I've done personally, like they, they may seem trite in comparison, but something like golf, for example, right there, there are a lot of people that, that play the game in a very particular way. And, and that's very guarded. And they always talk about, you know, don't hit it in the water or don't hit it in the trees or whatever it may be. And, and instead of, you know, when I approach the game, um, and maybe this is something that I should apply more to the rest of my life, I don't think about what I don't want to do. I think about what I do want to do. So I think about where I want to hit it versus where I don't want to hit it. And I think that that has served me very well in that particular instance. And I, I, I know now at least on many levels, like with music and with writing, with all these other things that I've done, I know now at least that I'm capable of acting through that fear. But this is one particular case in which I let the fear paralyze me. And that's that's been a very tough thing to reconcile because in, in my mind, I know how much at fault I am for letting that fear stop me from acting decisively. But at the same time, that's past. 
That's true. That's definitely you, true. You have to let go of that part of it and then get back into the acting thing. Because if you start focusing on how you didn't do it because of fear, you're just going to create a different fear that That's will true. prevent you from acting further. Yeah. So you need you need to take your own advice and just act. Yeah, I mean, I will say that that's what I'm doing. Um, you know, like we're 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 definitely taking very decisive action. Um, but the problem is that I mean, for for uh, you're you're totally right, and I completely agree with that. And, and it's it's how I'm going about this, but I can't change how bummed out I am by it. Totally, of course not. And why should you? You know, that's one thing we're entitled to as human beings is to feel shitty when something shitty happens. Yeah. You know, people people are always trying to convince us to feel better when when we feel shitty. The reason they're trying to convince us to feel better when we feel shitty is to make them feel better. True. Because we feel shitty knowing somebody else feels shitty. And so we want them to feel better so that we can feel better about everything ourselves. Sure. But you know, you're you're entitled to feel bummed. But you know, that's you know, just like anything else and the word grief is a very powerful word. And we usually only use it in reference to, to death. But there are little things that happen to us every day. And this is not a little thing. This is actually something between death and a little thing. Um, but things that we need to learn to use the word grief for. You know, you grieve that mistake. Why? Because grief is a process and it has an end. Sure. We, we get caught up in all these other ways of talking about things, the things that are indefinite. You know, but grief is a is is a process. So grieve that, go through it, feel it completely, and then let it go and move forward. Yeah, it's easy to say. <laughs> of course it is. If it was if it was easy to do, then it wouldn't be worth talking about. <laughs> yeah, that's true. That's why we have a damn podcast, son of a bitch. Yeah. All we talk about is stuff that's really difficult. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, and, and it's 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 tough because even in the moment that I'm talking about this, like I can't help it because this is all very fresh. I mean, I'm I'm literally in the middle of this right now, right. Um, so so the emotions are very present, and trying to squeeze words out of my head and heart in the midst of all of this is strangely difficult. Um, but but I, I'm hoping that it'll end up being cathartic in some way. Um, but, but I don't even, I don't even, I don't even expect that. I just want the idea to get across. And that idea is that living in the fear that you create for yourself is the easiest way to lose the things that you love most. I don't think we're going to have a segue from this section. So I'm going to leave leave this section with that, with that sentence. And we're just going to have a complete non-segue or just something else. (laughs) Whatever we talk about next is of no in no way connected to that, and nor nor should it diminish what we just talked about. Right. I feel like I need to like tattoo that on my ass or something. <laughs> so, so let me ask you this. Actually, I've been very curious about exploring this a little more with you. Um, so, I personally know bits and pieces of this, but I, I want some clarity. Can you give me a chain of inspirations that have defined your writing style? Um, you mean like just clarify that sentence for like me? I, like I know who your influences are, but I don't know. Yeah. I don't know when they are. Um, oh, like, I you get know, it. like you know, I know Bukowski's in there. I know Kerouac's in there. You know, I, I know who the main players are. I just don't know when they happened and why they changed. Did they course corrected for you? Um, 
I can start with the why first. The why is just they change as I as I change as a person. Um, you know, some of them, like the early ones, um, will always be an influence because they were early ones. Um, I mean, in some way, they all will, of course. But then some I outgrew. Um, some, like for example, you mentioned Bukowski. Um, Bukowski was a period of life of my life when I was drinking a lot and I was feeling sorry for myself. And, um, <laughs> Which is basically Bukowski. <laughs> yeah, he's a patron saint of losers. Yeah, um, absolutely. And sorry if anybody <laughs> doesn't mean everybody that reads him is a loser because I still like to read him. Um, but he makes you feel good about being bad. Um, and he makes you, and, you know, the, the biggest influence for me of Bukowski sometimes was not even his writing. It was his image. Oh, sure. Um, you know, the, the image of the alcoholic, but then I outgrew that mindset. I moved past that. When I wrote my first book of poetry, the first book of poetry, um, I don't even remember the first line anymore. I think I have the book right here. Hold on. <laughs> oh man. I don't remember what the first line is. That's kind of sad. It's my own book. Yeah, I was going to say, <laughs> By the way, anybody wants a copy of these? I still have some. <laughs> yeah, the first... Where is it? Yeah, the first line of the book is, Charles Bukowski was a dirty old man, and that's for goddamn sure. Um, the, f- the first poem that I wrote in this book was my way... This book, this book is called Erectile Dysfunction. Um, it is a book that was meant to cleanse Bukowski. Oh, um, and and the the feeling and the, the 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 mindset of Charles Bukowski. So the book is written in a style similar to him, and it was a way of exercising him. Um, that poem's called Charles Bukowski. As a matter of fact, um, it just you know I'm going to read that poem. Do it. I don't yes, think that's I, what I was. That was what I was trying to lead you to. Perfect. Um, it's short, so if you guys don't like poetry, number one, this isn't very poetic. <laughs> <laughs> Charles Bukowski was a dirty... I haven't read this in probably five years. Charles Bukowski was a dirty old man, that's for goddamn sure. And I'm not decrepit enough to be fascinating. They don't write articles about my hangovers and hangnails. My dirty mouth is as charming as piss stains on the bottom of a white t-shirt. There's no respectability to my ugliness. So I've pretty much given up on getting laid. It's out the window like whitewashed condoms and an ashtray of bent cotton necks. I didn't come for conversation. I'm not here to be wittier than a fist in your kidney, a finger in your eye. But I haven't stopped thinking about sex. I haven't stopped wanting to fuck things that bend right and smell nice. And after all, when you hang down your head, there are more great asses than there are great faces. And I haven't stopped jerking off. But this fucking and mating and dating and dancing, it's just too damn complicated. Too damn mangled to feel pure anymore. I'm just goddamn tired of working so hard to go limp halfway through or to be called an asshole for snoring the whole night through. I'd settle for a decent ass with a decent face and something interesting to say. But I save those thoughts to masturbate by because in the daylight there are too many books written and too many books to be written about the sex that was had when it still felt like something. God, that is a yeah, lot. Uh, fucking solid. <laughs> there's a lot more. So the, sorry, I'm moving a lot of shit around. I should just let that sit there. Um, 
it's in the style of Bukowski. You know, it's 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 infused with that uh, that light misogyny um, or sexism. Maybe it's not really necessarily misogynistic. It's more sexist. Um, and it was a way of cleansing that all out of me. And that wasn't like my, in a way, it was a thank you to him and a fuck you to him. Sure. Um, so going back to your initial question, most of the people that I've gone through, have I've gone through, I've changed because I've changed. Um, my initial, my first, first, first person that made me think for myself and will always be my patron saint is Kurt Vonnegut. I knew it was going to be first, Vonnegut. Knew it. First thing that was purely my own. Um, then I went through my, my beat phase. So Kerouac was huge for me. Sure. And Kerouac is still in some ways huge for me, but uh, he becomes more and more difficult to read just because of the, the, there is a ton of sexism in there and it just feels uncomfortable at times. Um, then it just, it's, it's at a certain point, um, I mean, Christopher Hitchens was a huge influence, but I think it was more of him as a person than necessarily his writing. Sure. Um, although he was an excellent writer. After that, it's just a matter of, of who is like flavors of the month almost. You know, like Murakami is huge for me um, because Murakami was the first it, first thing that was bizarre, but so eloquent and, and so perfectly um, crafted. Yet at the same time, it was weird and it didn't make sense, but it felt like this great work of, you know when we think of like great writers, sometimes we think of them as being really boring, you know, like Charles Dickens or something like that. But Murakami was too weird to be boring, but he had that same, but, but too boring to be amazing. <laughs> he had that same, that, I don't know, that same polish that those, you know, those greats have that we think are boring, um, which by the way, when you actually read the greats and you pay attention, they're not as boring as you think they no, are. They're not, they're not boring at all. Like if you, this is you, and and this is I think my impulse um, and why I can't do other things while I'm watching movies and 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 shows is because I I I I, I realize how much I miss when I don't pay attention. Yeah, I think for books especially, and that's particularly important because you know with the TV show you can kind of pick it up just by looking at the scene or whatever you know pick your head up, but with a book. <laughs> If you're not paying attention and you look and it's like two pages later, I just did that recently. I still do it every once in a while. Um, I've been reading the Mothman prophecies. I got through like chapter six and then I went a couple of days without picking it up and I picked it up and I'm like, so what happened in those first six chapters? So I reread them. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm glad I did because I really, really, really enjoyed the first six chapters. Um, yeah, but I think that, you know, like people like, um, that that idea of the, you know the the classics not being as boring as you think when you pay attention, that's what led me to Proust. And uh, I was just going to say that. And uh, spellbound because of, but at the same time, if I if I have pay attention to Proust, I have to put it down because I'm like this is boring because I'm not paying attention. Yeah. Um, but I, those are those are probably if I were to give you like five, those are pretty big five. You know, Paul Auster's in there as well. Um, I don't know. Everybody's, it's just a, a mood and a, a phase that I go through. Now I don't even think about writers so much as just ideas. I, follow. I, I, I feel like with certain ones though, it's definitely a, a matter of time um, in the sense that I, I feel like the, the, the time in which you read them and how you read them becomes the defining characteristic as to, well, well it, it defines how you understand them. Like I think 
you know, when I was younger, I wasn't ready for Proust and I read Proust too young. Um, and in my, my mid thirties, when I really dove back into Proust again, basically because of you, um, just blew me away, just absolutely blew me away. Um, and, it, and it's weird to think that I'd known his work to a certain, to a pretty level of high level of detail before that and never understood any of it. <laughs> it's impossible to, without a certain amount of age, you can't understand Proust because the whole idea of Proust, you know, he only had one book really. There was some other small books, but you know, uh, depending on how you translate it, in search of times past, um, in remembrance of lost time, in search of lost time, um, the book is about being older and remembering the past. Sure. And have and the it's something that shows up a word that shows up on your list this week: nostalgia. Um, it's about nostalgia, and it's about discovering mysteries in the nostalgia and mysteries in the past. And if you haven't lived long enough that you dip back into your past like that, the book makes absolutely no sense. It's like uh, having somebody read about baseball that doesn't know what the fuck baseball is. Sure. So it's, it, Proust is, you have to be at least 30 to read Proust, I think. Yeah. At the very least, you need to understand that, that um, I, I feel like um, nostalgia changes as you get older and, and the, the word nostalgia then becomes not descriptive enough to, to, to really tell the story of how and what you're doing. Cause I feel like a lot of people look back in very different ways. Uh, like, you know, some people look back to, to regret. Uh, some people look back um, for, for joy. And, and I feel like with me right now, my impulse is to look back to analyze. And, and those are three very different ways to remember things. Right. Exactly. I'm actually, I'm, I'm pulling out my big heavy dictionary because I'm wondering what the roots on nostalgia are. Um, uh, you're gonna you're gonna start dissecting words now. Cool. I always do this. You guys, you guys just don't hear about it. <laughs> <laughs> this is why I have a huge dictionary. I look things up in dictionaries still. Um, so let's see. Our roots are from the Greek nostos, return home, and all goes pain, pain that returns home. How about that? Jeez. That's why you look up the roots of words because sometimes you find out something fucking amazing like that. That is awesome. No shit. Wow. That's that's the most profound thing I've heard this year. <laughs> wow. God, I love that. Um, yeah, I mean, like uh, you, nostalgia is... I think it gets mixed with um, this sense of, of a remembering. Nostalgia is... it's. There's a, how would you explain the difference? Like, it's such a subtle difference. It is a subtle difference. I'm not sure. I mean, that's, that's, I, I guess in many ways, the, the, I'm trying to think of another word that has that same broad meaning. Um, because I, mm. I, I literally think that the word nostalgia means something very different for everybody. Um, you this know, is for very some people, good. You know, what's that? This is very good. It says bittersweet longing. For things, persons, and situations of the past. Oh man, <laughs> that's a very good definition. Um, homesickness. Oh, interesting. That makes sense. And and it's it's like a homesickness for the past, though. Maybe it's not necessarily for a place, but it's homesickness for a time. That's a really good way to explain it. Homesickness for a time. Yeah, that's pretty damn profound. Which is different than remembering. So I guess that clarifies it a little bit. Welcome to the Dictionary sure. Podcast. My name is Dick, and this is my friend Shaneri. 
<laughs> Bad jokes. It's in the description of the show, people. Bad jokes. Is it really? It is. In <laughs> yes, the it is. Yeah, 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 yeah. Totally. Bad is. jokes is in the description. I, I did warn you all. I was going to say, yeah, but you haven't pulled out a gem like that in a while. <laughs> um, nostalgia is a big thing for me, actually. Um, I think that's why I connect with Proust so much and to some degree um, why I connect with Murakami, who also is a huge Proust fan. Um, because to me, nostalgia is like a gateway to mystery. There's... Um, I'm just making these statements that sound very pretty, but mean nothing to anybody. Um, <laughs> what I mean is when I feel a sense of nostalgia, I always feel like there's, there's something that I need to unravel in the past. Um, that there's some sort of, there's some sort of memory that I can dig into that will blossom into something. And I hope that, does that make sense? It does. I, I feel like that's very specific to you though. I feel like when I'm, I'm nostalgic. It's it, I'm I'm more of a detective trying to solve a crime. Well, that's kind of what I mean too. Um, it's it's there's an idea or something there. I feel like when you feel a sense of nostalgia, what you're homesick for, using the definition here, what you're homesick for, you're not completely clear on, and that's why it's like there's a mystery to it because you know, like. Um, like when I've, I've talked in the past, uh, couple, I think it was three episodes, four episodes ago, about watching that CNN show, the '80s, and I started feeling a nostalgia. I started feeling a a longing to be in the '80s, but it's not specifically the things of the '80s, the shows of the '80s, all of those things that I was missing. It's something else. Well, I feel so, like for for me, it's the connection to who I was in that moment. Sometimes that's it for me. Sometimes it's not. Sometimes it's um, people, other people. Um, sometimes it's an outlook. Um, and not even just my own outlook, but um, my perception of, the, like, for example, with the 80s, you, to some degree, we can say that um, what I was longing for was a time when... Um, the world looked at itself in a different way. Oh, sure. Uh, there was more optimism than it feels like there is now. Um, and it wasn't all tied to like these really shallow things that we continually dip into every day in our social media. Um, so I think that's what I was longing to, but there was also another mystery. So I had to watch a bunch of 80s shows and, and really like uh, dig back into it. Like you said, be a detective and really unravel those things. So for me, like, I love nostalgia. Nostalgia and deja vu are like huge influences on me as a human being. Maybe if you're going to, you know, you asked me about influences of writers, of, of writers themselves, I would put those, those things in there with those people. Sure. Um, as a matter of fact, I don't know that I've ever articulated that before. And now that I have, that gives me a really interesting aspect of something to think about when I go back to writing. Yeah, it's 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 odd to think about nostalgia and its complexity because I don't think we often do. You know, I, I think nostalgia to us is a very loaded word um, that that people typically dismiss. Um, and the reason why nostalgia popped up for me in my list this week is is I, I think I currently hate it. Um, and the reason I hate it is because I look back at wonderful things and realize 
that some of them may not be possible anymore, and that's crushing. Right. Well, I mean, that literally is nostalgia, right? Return home, uh, pain yeah. that returns home. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's that's such an apt way to put it. You know, I I, I feel like I'm 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 going to sit in a, I'm I, I'm going to sit down in a chair in a burned down house. Interesting that you should say that. There's, that's an, an image that's in the book I'm working on. <laughs> um, wow, this has been a depressing ass episode. Holy yeah, shit! Yeah, we're gonna let's spin off into a different direction. I want to talk about this article we both read: um, the distrust of intellectual authority. It's, it's, it's tangentially connected to what we were talking about, um, at least as far as me missing the uh, a point of yeah. view of the world. I, I don't think that. Yeah, go ahead. Go ahead. No, go ahead. Um, what were you going to say? You don't think that what? Well, I, I think that I'm afraid that it spins off into the, if we're going on a macro level of what the article t- inherently represents, I feel like we, we spin off back into the political thing again. Yeah, let's see if we can do it without going into politics. Let's test ourselves. Okay, here we go. <laughs> we are not going to mention anybody's names here. Um, this is a very interesting article. Um, it's from a. I, I get the the newsletter from this site, but it's it's one of my favorite websites in the world. As you guys know, not digging into social media, I've been really fascinated with newsletters again, and with actually going to websites and looking at what's on a website. Um, and this one's called Farnham Street, and this guy writes about thinking and um, ways of thought and methods of thought and schools of thought. Um, his name is Shane Parrish. Brilliant, brilliant. And uh, this intellectual distrust theory, boil it down basically what he's talking about. And yes, it does lean toward the political, but I think that this also leans in many other directions as well, um, is that we are at a stage right now, he doesn't really go into it like this, um, but basically where as a society, and I, I would assume maybe this extends beyond the United States, where we question the we question what professionals tell us we question what experts say um an, an example of that would be climate change that's why um it, it would lean into politics but i'm, I'm going to read two uh, yeah it's, it's two very short paragraphs in one sentence um to give you like the heart of this article for me and why it just grabbed me and i had to share it with lamb don't get me wrong Reasons skepticism and disagreement are essential to progress in democracy. The problem is that most of what's happening isn't reason skepticism. It's the adult equivalent of a two-year-old throwing a tantrum. Sometimes experts are wrong and the common citizen is right, but those occasions are few and far between. What's growing is our inability to distinguish between experts being wrong occasionally and experts being wrong consistently. Participants in public debate search for loopholes and exceptions, anything that proves an excuse to disregard opinions they don't like. This sets up binaries and polarities, demanding that things be either true or false. This eliminates nuance. It's that last sentence that ties this into this show so tightly. That lack of nuance and it's it's interesting I, 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 to keep it out of politics. I think focusing on that nuance part is really our way through. What did you think when you went through this? It it, it struck a particular chord with me. Um, 
in that we, oh man, I'm trying to keep this out of political spectrum. Okay. So the, the thing that really spoke to me most was what we defined our country as, um, you know, the, the, the governing principles that, that, that determined who we would be as a nation. And I think one of those very powerful things, and, and I think we've taken it far beyond usefulness, is our need to be individuals. Um, you know, a lot of this this article is about how. Let me let me see here. There's one particular line that talks about how um, we are expected to be experts. And we can't be because we're ill-equipped, um, you know, just despite the, the schooling and the experience that we have um, throughout the, the, the early part of our adulthoods, um, we're ill-equipped to, to decide for ourselves what's best for us. Um, but I feel like because America is what it is to itself, there's an expectation that we should be. So it inherently builds in this cultural bravado that's very dangerous. Um, and I think that that bravado has led us to to be a culture of anecdotal. Um, how do I how do I say this? We love to point at people and give specific examples without taking in the breadth of information required to make an actual decision. Right, and this ties back to um, the coddling of the American mind, the book that I've mentioned before that I said is required reading. Um, because it's this idea of because you feel something, therefore it makes it as valid as something that's fact. Um, and it also ties into our long history ridicule of the flat earth movement. Um, <laughs> because like it says here, you know, reason skepticism, you know, I'll, I'll bring a brief example um, of climate change. I mentioned it before climate change. Um, I, I heard this today um, that there is now more evidence of climate change than there is of physics. How's that? Sure. Yet we don't question physics. <laughs> we don't question whether I drop this apple, it hits the ground. We don't question, um, you know, rifle, um, the way that rifles work, which relies on physics. We don't uh, question whether a bridge should be built the way a bridge is built, which, re which relies on physics. We don't question airplanes when we get in them, which relies on physics. But we question climate change. Well, and, it, goes, it goes back to something that I've mentioned quite a few things about politics even, is that the level of complexity is so daunting at this point. I mean, climate change is a good example of that, right? Like in order to properly understand climate change, you need to understand a lot of different things. You need to understand basic chemistry. Um, you need to understand, at the very least, you need to have at least some rudimentary understanding of the history of our planet and the effects of greenhouse gases on other planets like Venus, for example. Um, so I, I feel like most people in their daily lives, especially these days, I mean, I think about the Bay Area and I think about, you know, my friends who have two kids who are just trying to get them to school, get them fed, um, and, 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 and the amount of time and energy required in order to understand these extremely complex things, um, it, it makes sense that, that, that people take snapshots because no one wants to feel uninformed. No one wants to feel like an idiot. Um, so, so they have to hold on to headline culture. You know, they have to, to take that, that news snippet without the information to back it and use it as their, their, their guiding principle. I, I, and, and I'm not saying have to as in it's a good thing, but because it's a way of navigating though. It's, 
it's it's the assumptions they have to make in order to just get through their days, you know. Right, and we've we've talked about before that, you know, in in reference to the flat Earth movement in particular, that latching onto something like that is a way of dealing with um, uh, fearful situations in other ways. You know, like um, AI, I think was the example we gave then. Uh, gave then, um, you know, the the fact that you know jobs are going to be going away from those regions where flat Earth movement is more popular. Sure. So interesting, interesting article. Um, this is actually the first time Lamb and I have done this. We're showing, we're sharing show notes for the first time this week, and we're trying to, um, we're, we're listing the stuff that you know, like uh, shows and articles and things like that that we we both find interesting during the week, so that the other person has a chance to look at one or two of them, so that when we come in here. Um, there's at least one or two things that we can talk about that we've both read or both watched or both heard, um, and this was this was a great example of that. Uh, I don't I don't think it's over. By the way, um, I definitely want to talk more with you specifically about reason skepticism. I thought that was a really important aspect of the article. At least it spoke to me pretty. It spoke to me pretty strongly. So I want to talk about reason skepticism and why it's so inherently important for a democracy. <laughs> In, in the episode, or you want to talk offline about that? Uh, we can talk about it in the episode. You know, I feel Go like ahead. I feel like part of the reason why um, smart people are, uh, and maybe maybe I'm just being a little arrogant here. I, I consider myself to be a pretty smart person, um, and I consider you to be pretty smart as well. And I feel like smart people inherently have a, a, a tide of, of contradiction or a tide of rebellion in them because we don't want to accept the status quo for what it is. And the reason skepticism, I think, is a clearer sign of progress in intelligence than it is of actual intelligence. The more skeptical someone is, the more likely that I think they'll be smarter in the long run. And I think it's really, really important, not just for individuals, but as a country for us to continually question what we do and why we do it. Right. That You're right. That was one of the parts in there where he says, um, that sentence right there, reason, skepticism, and disagreement are essential to progress in democracy. So th- what's what's fantastic, by the way, this article is really short, guys. It's really short. Um, and it's and it's and it doesn't go into the polit- political stuff. It's just, it's literally, it's it's about thought and how it, um, how it affects these things. You know, the words come up. But it, it, this isn't about stopping people from questioning things. It's about... Um, in a way, without him trying to do it, it, it is, it's, it's, it's explaining why there's, um, you know, this whole anti-vax thing. And, you know, all these, th- all these strange movements that have popped up, you know, like, despite all the evidence, people want to believe something differently and why that is. And I think it plays into our long-running theme on social media. I don't think social media is to blame for this, but it definitely hasn't helped in any way. And it's that polarization that that we get from social media that's that mirrors this. Um, actually, it's a good time maybe to talk about that book that I read, The Attention Merchants. Um, so, Attention Merchants was mentioned in Digital Minimalism, the book that I've been recommending Lamb to read um, by Cal Newport, and. Basically, this book, I thought um, I went into it thinking it was going to be about social media right away. But this guy, like, so he, there, I don't have a better term to explain what an attention merchant is. 
other than to say attention merchant, but it is literally the history of attention merchantry. Uh, and so you don't you get through like seventy percent of the book before social media even pops in, um, and it goes all the way from the beginning of using posters in eighteen nineties in France to grab people's attention, you know, like Toulouse Lautrec and those guys, um, these sexy women in posters um, through radio, um, through Hitler and Hitler's use of propaganda um, through um, Edward Bernays, um, who wrote a book called Pop Propaganda that Hitler was a huge fan of, um, that was also worked, this guy also worked for, other than writing the book, also worked for the tobacco industry in creating propaganda. Like, for example, Lucky Strike, their slogan was, or their, their pitch was that their cigarettes were healthier for you than everybody else's. They made your throat feel better. <laughs> First of all, that's how much people were smoking back in the day that they all had sore throats. <laughs> um, I think at the time they were all smoking non-filtered too. Um, but he goes through all of that stuff and it's, it's fascinating because it, he creates basically a lineage so that when he gets into social media and he gets into all these things, you understand that this isn't something that just happened with the birth of social media. This is something that we've been edging towards in many ways through television, through Oprah Winfrey's original show before she became, you know, um, more focused on positive things when she was willing to put on, you know, Jerry Springer as stuff um, through People Magazine, through the Huffington Post, which by the way, did you know that one of the three founders of the Huffington Post is the guy that owns BuzzFeed? No, I did not know that. John Perez, Perezzi, per something like that. Um, yeah, I I hate that it makes sense, but yeah, I didn't know that. Well, what's interesting is I I think now Huffington Post has a fairly uh, positive um, pers- you know, people look at it as a a good news source. It was complete trash when it started. Sure. Um. Anyways, read that book for that stuff, but. Um, I have some notes here. I'm just trying to glance over and see which are worth bringing up right now. Oh, one, one of the things that he brings up is very interesting. He talks about the idea that before radio, there was a clear delineation between your home and the public sphere where advertisers and attention merchants could reach you when you were outside of your house. But when you were in your home, you were safe. The only thing that ever came in was uh, newspapers and magazines. And those are things, you know, you chose to bring in. Um, there was, you know, advertisements couldn't get to you until radio. And I thought that was a really interesting thing. And then, of course, I want to mention my favorite word, nuance, for this episode. Um, quote from the book, nuance was nonsense, complexity was a risk. This is in reference to Hitler. Um, Hitler was in advertising before he became the, uh, the whatever you want to call him, shithead of history. Well, one one could say that he stayed in advertising through through his entire life and into his death. Right, and this is what the reason I wrote that down is because we talk about this nuance nuance thing all the time, um, especially in reference to social media. The lack of nuance is deadly because the lack of nuance gives you Nazis. That's how you get that. Because what he purposefully built was an empire. He believed it was an empire, an empire that lacked nuance everything was black or white yep because nothing could be complex it all had to be simple and that was to 
sell it to the average person. I wonder, I wonder how close we're edging towards that today. I think we're, we're, if you read this book, it's not that we're edging towards it is we never got out of it. This is, this is a, this is a continual movement. It just shifts from mediums. Uh, I see. It's, it's, that's why, like I said, it's 70% of the book before you even see the word Facebook. Um, because he wants you to understand that this isn't something that, um, that just happens. It's something that comes up in, um, shit. I don't remember if it's this book or if it was, I think it was in Jaron Lanier's book. Um, actually it's in both books. The idea that there's a contract between attention merchants, you know, whether it's a government trying to, to sell you propaganda or it's all these um, tobacco companies or social media companies um, trying to get you to buy and sell and do all these things. They're vying for your attention. They're, they're purchasing your attention. And what happens is society rebels against that. And then the rules have to change. And then it happens again. And society rebels against it. And then the rules have to change. It's a continual cycle, but it's, it's a movement. It's a continual movement. Which is not to depress you guys. It's it's interesting to know these things. Yeah, um, so that you can see them coming and do something about them. <laughs> right. Um, let's see. Oh, these these are some really good ones. What he talks about is um, if you look at it as this movement, this continual movement, and one of one of the movements is towards us becoming the product which we are now with social media. We are the product. We're what's sold to advertisers. Social media companies sell us to advertisers. We are the product. But we're also the product to ourselves. We're continually selling ourselves. And the at this current point in history, the culmination of this whole movement that he writes about in this book is Instagram. And in fact, Instagram is the most nefarious of all of the social medias. And that is why I, th- I thought he doesn't say this, but that is why everybody says I don't look at social media except Instagram, oh, man. because it's the it's hardest cool. one to give up. Sure, because it's the one that literally where we became the product, and we and we accepted that. Um, perhaps this is a quote. Perhaps a century of the ascendant self of the self's. progressive liberation from any trammels not explicitly conceived to protect other selves. Perhaps this progression, when wedded to the magic of technology, serving not the state or even the corporation, but the individual ego, perhaps it could reach no other logical endpoint, but the self as its own object of worship. Mm. Powerful shit. Powerful powerful. shit. Ah, that's pretty amazing. (laughs) Great book. Great book. Um, yeah, the other, the other notes aren't worth mentioning. That's, that's, I'm done with that book. (laughs) Next topic. You ever listen to that? Um, what was that? Jack Black band. Oh, Tenacious D. Yeah. Remember when he's in the, when he's in the food line, he's like, next song, next song. I don't remember that. Well, then I just wasted saying that. <laughs> Nobody in the audience remembers that either. Ah, man. I, I, I mean, I feel like we could continue on that topic forever. But yeah, sure. I mean, I feel like, I feel like despite the fact that we've talked about it um, in bits and pieces over the last probably three or four episodes, 
I feel like we could do even a deeper dive um, into that article and the, the contents of it. You know, like there's there's one particular thing that I got from the article that was really fascinating. Going, which going was, back to the article, not the book, right? Yeah, going going to the the article. Um, Just making sure the audience is following us. Yeah, sorry, I'm I'm kind of bouncing around in my own head right now too. Um, I, I really wanted to talk to you about Grisham's Law at some point, um, and because I see that in politics more than. I mean, it's it's fascinating how the public discourse has has followed that so tightly. <laughs> Explain to the audience what that is. Uh, Grisham's law is uh, essentially why bad drives out good as time passes, um, and and what that means for public discourse. I mean, anyone who spends any decent amount of time on on um, on Twitter can give you a tangible example of that. Um, to give the back the the history of it. Um, it's named after Sir Thomas Gresham, who lived um, in the 1500s, and he was an English an English financier um, during the time of the Tudors. Um, and yeah, it, it, it's 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 so fascinating to see the, the the social ramifications of that postulation and to see it actually happening in real time. Um, but I feel like this is one of those things too that bounces around. You know, once once people realize that a certain medium has 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 gone into the bad then they rebel against it. Right. Yeah, there's a quote from the book that I didn't, that I didn't, bouncing back to the book. We're going to bounce back and forth between the book and the article, apparently. Um, there's a quote in the book that I didn't put in the notes that I probably should have. But uh, to boil it down, basically he says that that movement away from it, says what happens is people rebel against it. And then with time, their taste for the free wins out. Mm. And so the merchants come back. You know, we want free shit. You know, like, oh, we have, I want, I don't want to pay for my email. Therefore, I will let Google read my email. By the way, I pay for my email now. Yeah. I pay $30 a year for ProtonMail. And and tell people why. Because I don't want anybody reading my fucking email. <laughs> <laughs> Fuck them. That's my email. Well, that was a That's shocking, like, that was a shockingly precise answer. I didn't expect that. <laughs> It's like asking somebody to come over to your house and open your mail for it and then give it to you afterwards oh, and yeah. photocopy it before they give it to you. That's actually a great way of putting it. I've never thought of it that way. It's literally the same thing. Uh, Email is mail, right? That's terrifying. Yeah, absolutely. Actually, and we have more personal correspondences in our email than we have in mail anymore. Nobody sends letters anymore. Sure. So Google's saving all of your little personal, you know, the, all the dick pictures you're sending and all the little slutty things you say to your friends to be funny. They're all in the master brain, which I do want to talk about Google Cloud Consciousness at some point. Oh, by the way, they're, they're finally now coming out with uh, cell phone plans. Mm. And, That's and, great. So then and, they can know your location all the time. Yeah, I was going to say, like, I mean, it, tell me that terrifies someone other than me. Yeah, I, I'm, I've I've got to the point where um, I think that Google's "Don't Be Evil" thing was a joke because it, <laughs> I think they're the the most frightening company in the world right now. Actually, man, it's so insidious. I mean, it's so insidious, and they're probably going to make it extraordinarily cheap. Um, they're basically Google. Google has a wonderful way of 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 not giving you any options, right? Um, you know, I, I guess we'll mention the cloud consciousness thing. You know, we talked about this idea before. If you haven't listened to the older episodes, then you won't know what the hell we're talking about. But basically, Google um, talks about the idea of it's in Lanny's book. He makes a mention of this. 
and that book is 10 Reasons to Delete Your Social Media Right Now. Um, the idea of uploading our consciousness to Google's cloud. That's their, that's their goal, um, at least one of their goals. And one of the things that when we talked about that, Lam, I said, what's their motivation? That's always my thought. What's their motivation? And I had sure. a thought. I had a thought. I think I know what their motivation is. All I right. don't think that AI is ever going to be as good at discerning simple things as the human brain. Oh, I agree with that. Yeah, sure. That they're, they're, um, you, can, you can create complex algorithms for it to make decisions on something we'll probably talk about later, maybe not in this episode, um, like on whether to fire a gun or not. You can create complex situations for that. But um, this also, I guess we have to talk about automation because it's going to tie into it. But um, like Waymo, Google's um, self-driving software, car software, has the one thing that has trouble with is not all the complex things it takes to drive a car, merging. It has trouble merging um, because merging requires simple discernment. Should I go now or should I not? It requires a level of gut, a level of instinct when to go. And sometimes you're wrong. That's why we have accidents, right? Machines can't do that. And it's possible that they may never be able to do that. So maybe Google wants us to upload our consciousness to their cloud so that they can inject our ability to to discern those simple things into their AI. Mm. That that the human factor is the only thing that they can't replicate. Sure. Terrifying. God, that is terrifying. Eternal digital slavery. And I mean, the, the, the ramifications of their phones becoming as ubiquitous as they, they probably will end up being as it makes it even more terrifying. Right. That's why I think as much as I, I, I like Apple, um, I think it's really important to start buying other phones that aren't Apple or Google. I, I actually conceived of doing that today, actually. Yeah, it's, it, you just have to buy dumb phones. Though. I don't think there are any smartphones, right? Yeah, not that I'm aware of. They all run I, on I'm, Android. I mean, I mean, I'm sure that there are somewhere, but I mean, especially in, in modern times, the 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 engineering required to develop an entire AI, I'm, I'm sorry, an entire OS for mobile devices, is pretty daunting. Um, and I don't think that that there's enough support in open source to create a viable enough solution to replace anything that we already currently have. Right. And a lot of the, you know, like if you look up like the most secure phones or whatever, a lot of them are running on Android. Um, like there's one, I can't remember the name of the phone, so it won't be in the show notes. Um, but it, it does something really cool. It runs on a a really stripped down version of Android, but it, it does this. It's almost like a blockchain thing. Um, every time that you power on the device in the background, it checks the code and makes sure that the code hasn't changed. Mm-hmm. Interesting. And that's the entire code. So wow. that's pretty brilliant. Um, I mean, I, oh, wow. Um, I wonder if it will ever become viable for a, 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 a public collective to develop a like mobile a Linux device. phone? Yeah, like a true Linux phone, like a truly, a truly open source phone. I think it will happen. Well, the problem is the problem is the network, right? Like if you're one of these these companies, you have a vested interest in keeping keeping some control over that and making sure that people don't access that network. Right, which which not to dip into politics, let's just dip one toe in real quick. Um there will be a five apparently a five G network that's run by the government. 
Yeah, I, I mean, please Even more tell terrifying. Me. Yeah, I was going to say, someone please tell me they realize how bad of an idea that is. I mean, not 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 for not for the government. It's great for them. They get to read and see every every action we do and every email we write. Right. But you know, from yeah, who needs who needs backdoors into phones when you can just intercept the message itself? Yeah, exactly. It's it's there's no back door. You're in the front door. Yeah, you are the you are you, the door. You are the door. Ah, <laughs> <laughs> uh, okay. So okay, let's talk cool. about the automation stuff then. Um, since right, we're in it. Well. Um, so the first was an article from Ars Technica on Google's Waymo, which I mentioned before. Talked about how it's shitty at um, merging. Um, one of the things that they use in there that makes this article really um, interesting reading is they did talk a little bit about um, Xerox and Apple. And how, for people who don't know this, Xerox had a system, I believe it was called the Star System, um, which was the precursor to OS, Apple OS, and the precursor to Microsoft Windows because Microsoft Windows copied Apple, Apple copied Xerox, mm-hmm. which is funny when you think about that. Somebody copying Xerox. <laughs> For anybody that doesn't know, Xerox used to make photocopiers. That's why that's funny. Um, bad jokes once again. Um, but uh, the difference there was uh, Bill Gates stole the idea from Apple. Xerox actually didn't, they had very bad foresight <laughs> and they let Steve Jobs and, and Steve Wozniak and a couple of engineers come in and write down everything about their program and told them they could do whatever they want. So what happened was Apple took that and they made something. The reason that they weren't afraid, the reason Xerox wasn't afraid is because um, the Xerox star system was extremely powerful business software, extremely powerful. What Apple made was not powerful, but what Apple made was fucking cheap. It was a couple thousand dollars. The Xerox system was like $80,000 or $90,000. Sure. What mattered more in the end? Cheap. Of course. So the reason he talks about that is he says, he says he's, he's looking at what Google's doing with Waymo and going, Google might be too stupid here to actually get away with doing this self-driving car thing. Um, like like they were with Google Glass. Oh, we have this great idea. We have no idea how to market it. And then it just dies. So, so they had these uh, other people that were working for them because Google is going about this in such a strange way that these guys have gone off and created their own companies and these guys are already marketing. They already have self-driving cars on the road in states. Sure. Um, I don't remember the names of the companies, but one of them is doing grocery gro- local neighborhood grocery delivery, um, and the other one is doing um, retirement community um, transportation. Yeah, from what reason- I re- from what I remember of the article, the companies were Neuro and Voyage. Okay, I didn't know you read it. You should have moved it up into the blue section, so I knew you I, read it. Well, I mean, this is the first week we're using this. I've literally used it for twenty four hours, so I don't <laughs> I don't understand I the fucking rules yet, Chad. I I wouldn't have been monologuing so much. I would have been asking for your input more. I didn't know you'd read it. I thought I was telling you about it. Well, well and so now for people who don't know the the structure of the show, um, Chad, when I haven't read something, is explaining to me as much as he's explaining it to you. Yeah, which is different than the past because in the past, anytime Lamb and I were talking about something in this show, we were explaining it to the other one. Yeah, exactly. So, so sometimes we share things now. Um but yeah, you're, they, those, those sound right. So you're probably absolutely right. Um, and the reason that those guys are in those markets too is because the, 
the cars um, legally can't go over 25 miles an hour. Yeah. Um, so driving around older people in a retirement community, you don't need to go over 25 miles an hour because you're basically a golf cart. Yep. Sending a grocery delivery to somebody's house, who cares if it takes you know an hour instead of 20 minutes? You still don't have to go to the store. Um, another thing about this too is all of these cars right now require a driver, uh, a backup driver, a human. <laughs> so one of the reasons they think that Google is going to suck at this is because um, they haven't gone into any of these things. So they're not making money on this project yet. Um, but they are paying people to sit in the self-driving cars. So if they ever go into like the Uber situation, number one, nobody's going to want to get into an Uber that can't go over 25 miles an hour and can't go on the freeway. And number two, it's a little bit weird if you get in the Uber and there's another guy sitting in the back seat with you because that's his job. <laughs> to watch the car just in case. That is so... Uh, I, I don't see that word. That's so crazy. <laughs> How hilarious is that though? You get in the car, you're like, hi. He's like, hey man. Uh, <laughs> he's in his uh, underwear, like you know, watching porn on a laptop because you know, he's been in there all day. That is the most, like an aquarium that is, in there. That is the most, most awkward car ride in the history of mankind. <laughs> it would be even worse if he's in the front seat. So oh, there's yeah. no, no driver, a guy in the passenger seat, and then a guy in the back seat. <laughs> it's it's like a it's like an outtake from Total Recall. <laughs> that is so strange. Uh so that was that was the gist of that. What were your thoughts on that, that Lamb? Um I mean I have a tendency to agree. I mean I I I, I studied that pretty extensively when I was in high school because I wrote a long paper on it. The not not the 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 driverless car thing, but the Xerox example. Um mm-hmm. And how I, I'm not sure if it was short sighted. I mean, I, I do agree that it was short sighted from a business perspective, but somebody was going to get to it sooner or later. Um, so I don't know. I mean, I think Xerox just basically the problem is they didn't evolve with the industry. It wasn't that they didn't know how to market it properly; it's that they didn't grow past their initial idea. They 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 didn't understand the significance of such simple actions like copy, cut, and paste. Um, and and. And it, it takes a brilliant mind to realize that that the simplicity of the idea is what makes it so revolutionary. And you know, if we're talking about Bill Gates as a guy, I think that's that's one of the defining characteristics of the tech industry and why, even to this day, that's kind of the the, the hallmark of of most um, that that live or work in the tech world. Like, I mean, I, I remember working with. Um, I remember working, you know, in my days in tech, and, and having one of the edicts be that we needed to always find the simplest common denominator and the simplest solution because that's typically the one that ends up being right. And the other thing they didn't understand too was the market that they that the, they thought that there was, um, you know, these companies were going to spend this inordinate amount of money for this software, which there was literally no motivation for them to spend that much money. So sure. they literally created a product that nobody wanted to buy. They might have wanted to use it, but they didn't want to buy it. And and I think that's that's analogous to what you know they're afraid that Google's doing. They're going to create this system that nobody wants to use. <laughs> sure. Which I don't I don't know. We'll see how that shakes out. I think that we are a longer way away from self-driving cars than people want us to believe. Yeah, and I, I feel like it's, we're also probably closer than you and I believe too. 
Yeah. Like I, I like I think I think the, the the idea of driving cars isn't about driving cars, but about infrastructure. Um, like for me, the 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 best version of that that I've ever seen is the one that I saw in Minority Report. In um, that entire systems of highways were built um, for the the, the self driving cars because I I think the problem is you can't have a mixture of both. You either either everybody's in a non drive a non a driverless car or everyone's driving a car. Yeah, I, th- I feel like we've talked about that once before on here, or maybe it was in person. Um, I agree. Yeah, because the reason that merging is difficult for these things is because humans are unpredictable to the machine. You know, they don't know if they're going to slow down, they're going to speed up, you know, what they're going to do. But if you have, you know, three machines on the on the freeway and a fourth one's coming in, they can just communicate to each other and make room for each other because computers aren't assholes. People are. <laughs> well, it's it's more so it's not even necessarily that people are assholes, it's that people are are irrational. You know, the 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 idea of the idea of a driverless car is very binary. It's it's a one it's a one and a zero, you know, versus humans that are humans are much more quantum theory in that there's one through a hundred and any one of those possible variations. Like it's not just about whether a person will merge or not, it's how quickly they merge, how much room they give you, how much space they take to merge. I mean, all of those things are, are much more quantum than they are binary. Right. But I do think that asshole factor is the biggest of all those options. Because <laughs> the I think that <laughs> the reason the reason that it's this like the X factor, it's the ass factor. Um it's it the reason that people the merging sucks is because somebody doesn't want to slow down a little bit to let you in because they're afraid they're gonna get where they're going, you know, 40 seconds later. <laughs> I love that that we're correlating or, or we're redefining quantum theory as the asshole factor. <laughs> Welcome to random badass. <laughs> that is amazing to me because it's so true. I mean, even even if you take quantum theory and physics, it's that particles become assholes and they do what they want to. <laughs> <laughs> Let's just rename this show the asshole factor. Oh, no, so I think we'll good. get the wrong so audience good. with that name. I mean, Crystal, Crystal, Crystal used to say that I had, I have one of the, the, one of my gifts as a person is explaining really complex things in very simple ways to people. And I think you just gave me the best way to define quantum physics to people. <laughs> it's the, it's the asshole factor. It so is. It's so weird. Uh, well, we're on automation. Did you, I'm, I'm assuming you didn't pick up a copy of Scientific American. No, 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 no. Okay. So uh, don't let bots pull the trigger. It's in uh, March 2000, this month's uh, 2019 issue of Scientific American. Very short article, but it's talking about automation when it comes to weapons. This is terrifying. Oh. Um, so first of all, um, the technical term for these things are lethal autonomous weapon systems. And what I find almost like I think I'm in a movie, is that the acronym for that is LAWS. Mm-hmm. I, I had like, a, and when I realized that, I had like this um, flash to the future where we talk about the laws. You know, you got to follow the laws because they're these floating autonomous things that'll blow you away. Um, horrible. But anyways, uh, this, this idea of uh, autonomous weapons is not a future thought. This is a current thing that is happening. Um, for example, Russia's Kalishnikov Group announced development of a 7.62 millimeter machine gun equipped with a camera and a neural network for making shoot, no shoot decisions. Jeez. How's that? So basically, they're building weapons that they don't even need a person's permission to fire. 
oh man, screw that. Yeah. Holy shit. Um, there's, there's a, in, in this short article, just because it's so heavy, there are so many things in there that are terrifying. They talked about um, uh, the idea that you don't even need lethal um, the laws, uh, lethal autonomous weapon systems. You don't even need them to have weapons for them to be lethal. Think about, um, they, they, they did a test. Somebody did a test of 100 mini drones attacking someone that had no weapon systems. So imagine being swarmed by drones. Or, or imagine a giant robot without guns. I mean, that robot can still rip you in half. <laughs> right, or smash your house. And, and can still run at, you know, 120 miles an hour. <laughs> right. Um, one of the quotes from it is, existing AI cannot deduce the intentions of others or make critical decisions by generalizing from last experiences. The inability to read behavior subtleties to distinguish civilians from combat or friends versus foe. Kind of like merging. Then I have, then I get the sense that this is not the Askell factor, but the kindness factor, and that that is just as applicable in, in quantum theory from what we're talking about. Uh, I, I think just really, I just really want to get quantum theory into the damn episode, Jed. <laughs> I just I, this is what they're basically saying is we're giving these things brains, but they don't really understand the difference between their friends and their enemies. So they well, might that, go on the field and kill your own soldiers. And thus you're, you're going back to nuance again and why nuance is so important. Yes, exactly. Because nuance is human. Yeah. And that's the thing that they can't replicate. So, so the less nuance we, we have in our collective lives or society or as individuals, the less human we become. Yeah. Hey, we're doing a really good job of tying all these topics together. Right. Just, uh, and, by the way, not intentional at all. <laughs> no, not at all. Um, as our friend Carlos likes to say, we should just stop and toot our horns. Toot, toot. Yeah, we, we literally never do that. That's true. Yeah, we're doing a good job. Good us. Good us. Um, you want you got something from your list you would like to dive into that connects tangentially or maybe non sequitur? Um, let, me, let me actually look. I'm I have a tip sure. for that. Non sequiturally? Non sequiturally? Um, I think not. I'm, I'm I'm looking at my list now. And there's not a single thing that isn't absolutely terrifying. Oh, um, except for the how to make friends when you're older. All right, that's something that robots can't do. Hey, there you go. There's your connecting thread, people. <laughs> yeah, but but you know that's that. See, that's that's weird though because I think robots can make friends. Yeah, I think I think that there's a way to, and I think their 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 friendships would actually be a lot more pure than ours are. Can they make friends when they're older? No, that's not true. Yeah. But I think they can be friends with older people easier than they can with younger people. Right. Well, are they friends or are they servants? Uh, but at least on some level, isn't all friendship um, a mutual servitude? Only the good ones. Holy shit, we're getting so philosophical. I like that entire that entire exchange we just had because I've never, <laughs> I've never put it in terms of that or, or in terms like that before, but great ch- friendships are, are, are mutual servitude. That's amazing. And uh, just to wrap this around to the beginning of the episode, when we talked about after the follow-up, when we talked about uh, your current situation and relationships and stuff like that, good relationships person should think about the other person and never have to worry about thinking about themselves. Because that person, they trust that that person will think about them. I read that somewhere and I thought that was great. Where it's like, I don't have to worry about if that person's going to take care of me. I just trust they will. 
you gotta so find where that is, man. I, I really, I really want that. I, I, I need you to find where you saw that. Ugh, I don't know if that's possible. I'm not a machine. I cannot dig through that kind of memory. We're talking decades. Oh shit. Okay. Yeah. It's, it's probably something that's repeated over and over again in really good psychology books about relationships. Sure. But um, yeah, I don't know. Let's talk about this. Get making friends when you're older because I'm not good at it. But then again, maybe I never was. Hmm. I feel like uh, I feel like when you get older, you're you're at least for me. Um, I find friendships easier to build in mutual action versus when I was younger, where I found friendships to build or or uh, friendships were easier to build with mutual idealism. That's interesting because um, Malcolm Gladwell in, I think it's in The Tipping Point, makes a point that friendships are never actually based on mutual belief, that we think they are. But when you actually boil it down and you find out it's it's actually mutual action. That's why people have friends from school. And then when they graduate, they don't ever see any of them again. They have so, more friends. So I get to high five Malcolm Gladwell because I came to the same conclusion. Sweet. You just need to grow out your fro. <laughs> Can you imagine if you had a fro? Oh, no, I can't imagine that, but I'm going to Photoshop that now just so I can see. I was going to say, somebody, please start Photoshopping that instantly. Oh, man. <laughs> yeah, but, that's, but that's, that's so true, though. I mean, I think about the friendships that I... I think about how few of my, my, my high school friends I still keep in touch with. And, and most of that is because I have absolutely nothing in common with them when it comes to how, what my, my typical day looks like. Right, and probably because most of my life revolves around doing stuff with my dog in my home or podcasting. I don't have any friends. <laughs> <laughs> oh, you have plenty of friends. You just don't see them as often as you you or they would probably like. Yeah, some people I haven't seen in a long, long time. Yeah, because um, you, and I, yeah, you and I have the same friends and I know that they like you. So, <laughs> and I see them a lot. So why were you thinking about making friends when you were older? Um, because I think about about I think about some of my friends um, for whom I have a particular affection, and how unique it is that it's not about either of those things. Hmm. Um, like I, I think of my friend Carlos, Carlos Agrillo, not Carlos, not the other Carlos. Man, are we saying last names? Well, you did now, but well, screw <laughs> it. Um, well, basically. There are some people who are just very good at being good friends. Right. Like like I my friend Matt's like this too, where regardless of whether we are currently doing anything together or how often we see each other, they they always reach out and they always reaffirm that friendship. Um and there's some people who just have a spectacular skill at that. I I, I for one do not, but I, I love the impulse and I, and I love the effect. You know, it's always really good to hear from certain people because they're genuinely interested in your life. Right. Those are friends that you should never lose. You know, um, funny, so funny. The other Carlos, <laughs> he sent me, a, sent me a message. I can't remember it word for word, but it was along the lines of, you know, like, you, you know, somebody's a really good friend if you don't always have to talk to them, but you always feel like you're still on the same page or something along those lines. Sure. And I, I think that's true. Like I think of uh, my roommate from when I was in college, which was shit, was that 20 years ago? Um, <laughs> more than that. Shit. Man. Over, over 20 years ago. Um, we shared a room freshman year. 
And then sophomore year, we didn't share a room, but we still hung out because we're still going to the same school. Um, And then after that, I left that school. And I probably only have seen him once in the flesh since then. But anytime that we get on the phone, which is very, very rare, um, it's like zero time has passed. And those are very, very rare relationships. Yeah, I'm kidding. I think that to some degree, that's what makes making friends as you get older difficult because you might be measuring people against those relationships. Interesting. Um, I know I do. Um, I, I've got, as I've gotten older, I've gotten more hesitant to use the word friend um, because I think it's an overused word. I agree most with of, that. Most of the people in our lives are, we're friendly and we like them. This is, you know, this is to clarify is not to be a negative thing about any of these people, but they're acquaintances. They're people you're acquainted with. And some of them are very friendly acquaintances, but they're not your friends. Sure. Um, they're, they're not involved in your life the way that a friend should be. Um, there are people that you're always happy to see, but that's different. I actually really agree with that. Like I, I also too, and I, I, I feel like it's subconscious because I don't think I actively chose to do this, but I'm very particular with who I call a friend these days. Yeah. And, I feel, and I feel like that word has so much more meaning to me now than it ever has. Yeah, I, I, I have many, many acquaintances, many acquaintances, many acquaintances that I have an extreme amount of affection for, but I have very few friends. Sure. Um, very, very few friends. And that's that's not a judgment thing. That's just a measurement thing. Yeah, I, I, I would say that if we're if we're using that as our measure for friendship, I might have seven people in my life. Yeah, I don't even want to do the math. It'll terrify me because it's probably smaller than that. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Uh, what's next? I don't even know. Since we split the had to split the episode because if you're getting dropped, I have no idea what our runtime is now. So we'll just go till we uh, shit ourselves. Well, I feel like, I feel like we're pretty close and well, at least I'm pretty close to shitting myself. Um, I feel like we're, we're close to the end just because I feel like there's a wrap around here somewhere. Somehow I feel like there's, 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 there's a point to this episode more so than any of the other ones that we've, we've done um and i i don't know if that's just me feeling that because of what i talked about in the beginning or if there's an actual through line here that that is just at the tip of our grasp and we're not quite grabbing it yeah i mean there's obviously there's themes like nuance that have have made it through many of the topics um nuance fits many many places this is a very different episode um i feel like the last episode was very different too um, but we're going through phases. Um, it's less goofy, um, we've, which is which is fine. I'm not judging our episode, but I think that uh, we're overthinking things at the same time. Sure, but I'm. In, but I'm. The in audience that should find right the through now. line, not us. That's true, and I, and I feel like I'm just I'm I'm in that analysis mode in my own life. So I feel like by nature I'm just overthinking things. Yeah, well, it goes back to that. Uh, what we talked about before that, you know, that need for control when something feels out of control, we always reach for something else that we can get some semblance of feeling of control. Or when something feels like chaos, we reach for something that feels organized. Sure. Um, yeah, I don't, I think that the, of all of my notes right here, the only one that I think would actually fit into this episode would reach back to the beginning, which would probably is a good way to go through this. Cause then we'll get into our challenges. 
for next week or for this week, I should say. Um, I have the word static thoughts. One of the things I, I realized in having um, in going from using my devices a lot to using my devices less and less is that at first um, my thoughts were like static, like you know, like a, and back in the day, an out of tune TV, you know, like where the vertical hold is off and it's just flicking. Uh-huh. And, it, and it took me a very long time to get to where I could focus my thought again, and. I, I think it was always like that while I was using the devices and social media. And I didn't realize it because I'd become accustomed to it. Sure. And uh, so that's it. That's all I had to say about that. <laughs> <laughs> I, was, I was trying to figure out where you're going with that one. That's where I was going. I was there already. That was this short destination. You know, all of these aren't long topics. Um, the other ones can wait. Actually, that's another thing. Um, I might as well tell you while we're on the episode. You can delete whatever you want and you can start fresh for next week if you don't want to talk about any of those things. I'll probably kill some of these. Yeah, um, I'm probably, I, I already feel the impulse to do that. I still need to learn how to use it properly. Otherwise, the list is just going to get really fucking long. <laughs> we went through a lot tonight, though. We did a really good job. Um, I actually really like this episode a lot. I mean, I, I, I'm usually scared of our episodes. Um, it's, it's almost like letting a kid go off to boarding school and wondering what kind of kid is going to come back. Um, and I'm usually scared. Um, but this one I, I actually feel really good about. And it's the first time I, I think in, in our current iteration of the show where I felt this good about an episode. I think that uh, when the most of the time that I get nervous is when we talk too much about politics. Oh, sure. It's just a, it's a minefield and it never feels, I feel better when I edit the episode and I listen. I'm like, okay. Like last week I was nervous. Um, but then I edit it. I'm like, oh, it sounds good. Ah, okay. So challenges for the week. This should be interesting. What do you, what do you have in mind? Oh man. Um, this is going to be an ambitious one, um, but I'm going to fucking do it. I'm going to do it. Um, I will write a song by next week. Wow. Let me put that one in. Doom, 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 lamb. Write a song. Jeez. I'm I'm, I'm literally, I'm literally already regretting it. Well, remember, you can fail your challenges. You just have to admit to everybody. No, fuck that. I'm doing it. I, I'm com- I'm so committed to accomplishing these challenges, man. By the way, um, I don't know if I've mentioned this to you before. <laughs> As I'm typing your name, it occurs to me. So my dog has three toys. They're his favorite toys. One of them is a lamb chop, you know, like the from the the character, not an actual lamb chop. You know, it's like the <laughs> lamb, the, the stuffed lamb. Yeah. And I had to consciously make sure to call this something other than lamb. Where's your lamb? Because I didn't want to walk around <laughs> calling your name and the dog toy your name. So it, it's now called Lammy. <laughs> oh, man. And, and that he just is opened what, his eyes when he heard me say that, by the way. <laughs> well, one of my ex-girlfriends called me Lammy. And so there's a whole there's a whole chunk of my friends that knows me as Lammy. So that's a little weird, <laughs> but I like it. I like it. The first day I had it, I was like, where's your lamb? Son of a, I can't do that. That's, that's fucking weird. You know, it'd be like if you, you know, you had a dog and like, where's your Chad? Where's your Chad? That would be super weird. <laughs> that's the voice I use for the dog. Uh, my challenge, you know, I thought I knew what it was. Um, I'm going to be a little bit different. I got one. My challenge is not to buy anything from Amazon for a whole week. Huh. Not use Lam- Am- Amazon. That was good. Lamazon, yes. 
By the way, uh, listeners, one of our, you are loyal listeners if you've made it this far on the show. Um, one of our nicknames for this show is um, Lambdom Chadassery. I really like that one, by the way. <laughs> uh, that goes back to season one. Oh, man. Yeah, that's old school. And we all, I mean, I don't know if people know it yet, but Chad loves plays on words. Yeah. I've, I've always been a dad joke person, I think. Probably why I've never thought myself very funny. <laughs> all right. You guys know what I'm about to say, don't you? I'm going to say we're, oh, no, I can't. We have to challenge the audience. Oh, true. Um, audience, um, let's have a moment of silence for you to tell us how you did on your challenge last week. Very good. Thank you. Um, shit. Ryan, what's your challenge to the audience? Hmm. Um, pick the three people in your life who you consider to be your closest friends and write down five reasons for each as to why. That's a good one. My challenge to the audience is put your phone in the drawer for four hours. <laughs> you are so anti-technology right now. I love it. Well, not anti-technology. It's brought me so much specifically, happiness. Specifically, um, you want people to be present, and I love that. I'm anti-modern technology. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm okay sure, with with fun. older technology. <laughs> okay, guys, this is the point where I say we're going to shoot it in the foot. Uh, last week, I didn't bother to talk about the website because I don't really give a shit, but <laughs> <laughs> I should because there's a page on there that I've never mentioned on here. We have a page on there. What the hell is it called? I think they call it support. I might have called it support. I don't even remember. Uh, yes, it's called support. Please go there. Check it out because you can... Perfect time for that bell to ring. I think it's time to take my pill. You can go on that site and you can donate monthly to Holy Fool, which would support this show and Creative Minds. There's $5 a month, $10 a month. If you're really crazy and you want to do $25 a month, there's also other. If you want to do less or more than any of those amounts or in between, there's also an option for donate once. So please help support this because... Some of this shit's expensive, dude. <laughs> and, and more so than just being expensive, it takes a whole lot of time. Yes. And time is money. Absolutely. And while you're on the website, sign up for the newsletter. And you'll get all the stuff that I post to the website sent to you. I don't send them all in one big chunk. I spread them out through the week because I don't use social media. So that's how I sublimate it. Okay. Um, bang, bang. In the foot. Lamb, you have anything you want to say? Um, just want to say I love you all. Okay, babies. Bye-bye. Bye.